This is the Chicago Podcast Network. Hey guys, on today's episode, I'm going to sit down, well, sit down, we're going to go over the internet with AJ and a guest of his named Allison White from Safe Harbor, a caring, compassion, a caring, compassionate response to addiction center uh, out there in Dixon, Illinois. It's a great interview, great conversation. Uh, you can go to Safe Harbor, just Google it online, you can find out all the information that you need. Uh, Allison is a wonderful interview, she's a great guest. I hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Not the most fun topics, but we get into uh, the heroin epidemic going through Illinois. I hope you guys like it and here we go hey everybody thank you for downloading this episode of out front with aj and nick i am nick sorrentos editor-in-chief and host here on the chicago podcast network joined over the interwebs and skype by my good buddy aj signary aj i guess this is the time where you do what you do Hello, people. See, he gets all deep with it every time. It's sexual. I love it. He is joined in his little studio with Allison White, and they both work with the Safe Harbor, which is a compassionate response to addiction organization. And they today we are going to be talking about, well, it's a fun topic today, folks. I'm sure we'll be filled with laughs and love uh, because we're going to be talking about Illinois' heroin epidemic and we're going to be talking about, uh, this all comes off of PBS's Frontline Show, which had an amazing documentary air earlier in the week called Chasing Heroin, which led to AJ and I having some discussions with the people, and we wanted to bring that to the air. So first off, AJ has already said hello to the people. Allison, say hello to the people. Hello. Uh, see, there we AJ and I know a woman. You wouldn't think that from listening to our podcast network, but... Dick. What? It's a lady. <laughs> it's a lady. We gotta behave ourselves. AJ, put your pants back on. <laughs> Listen, the beauty of doing this thing over the internet is AJ. It's probably entirely possible that I've done every show pantsless. I know you have. I mean, you know, it's a thing. It's a fashion statement, really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got the the funny part out of the way. Now let's dive. Head deep into what I'm sure will be a very fun topic, and I'm saying that, you know, misleadingly or sarcastically, however you want to put it. The documentary that aired on Tuesday, AJ, uh, you saw it as well. Did you, just taking away not what it talked about, but the documentary itself I thought was uh, fascinating and very well done. What did you think? The documentary was decent. Um, I think there was parts of it that actually brought information to light that would never have been shown on NBC, CBS, and CBS and Fox. Um, but at the same token, um, I still feel it's a still a PBS documentary. And by that, I mean they really didn't go into as much information that they should have and everything. It's not just on, like, the Chasing Heroin episode, but some other um, documentaries they've done that I can use examples of, of, of that example and everything. Um, but, I mean, the nice thing about PBS and Frontline is, like, they actually do investigative journalism. Yeah, what and a concept. So, like, Martin Smith and um, his wife do an absolutely fantastic job of providing that kind of information and providing the statistics and everything. But like I said earlier, they could have gone a little bit further when it comes to other intersectional issues when it comes to, in this case, the heroin episode. 
Well, the, I, I understand what you're saying. There, are, there are definitely times where the frontline documenter can only go only goes so far. Although I would say that, to their credit, like you're saying, the investigative journalism is something that's slowly being phased out, and it's important. It's one of the most important jobs the the press has, and frontline to me is probably the leader as far as places that I trust to get news. Would you would you agree with that? Like you can generally count on what they say to be factual. Yeah, I mean, it's, in terms of like the major networks, I would go to them first. But these days, they're kind of like my secondary source of information, and my primary sources would be like Vice or outlets like Vice in order to get information because like Vice actually goes and investigates actual information and actually like talks to people not saying frontline does not do that but like vice has that um certain polish to it in order to show an actual human face to the numbers and everything whereas frontline shows a human face and numbers are kind of somewhat separate a little bit and there's a little bit more of a liberal bent to it whereas vice has more of a constructive critical bent to it does that make sense no it does it, it absolutely does the, the, the only thing i would say is that uh vice in my from what i've from when i've watched them while they are very very good uh at putting people into real situations to investigate stuff and showing you the investigation on the ground what i will always give credit for uh, or I always give credit to Frontline and other PBS shows is they, to me, represent the old school of journalism, the good parts of the old school of journalism with very high ethics, you know, at least two confirmed sources and, and stuff like that. It, it's, it, it, to me, uh, as much as Vice News is, is important because it gives you a, amazingly enough to, to, to phrase it this way, it gives you a, a Frontline view of what's actually happening in the world. The show Frontline and other PBS organizations do a really good job of researching, making sure that the stuff that they have is, is accurate, and trying to do it with as little uh, bias as possible, which is one of the reasons I love, I love PBS. Right, and I think, that's, I think that should be really emphasized that unlike um, the other major networks, PBS does an adequate job of being more down the middle of the information and let the viewer take that information as what it is, whether it be that face value or slightly past that. But, and I said this to someone else the other day about um, another PBS documentary. Um, PBS has a, let's, let's be honest, PBS has a unique demographic. Well, it's it, a demographic that... Um, People go to Whole Foods. They go to Trader Joe's. Uh, they are suburban. Um, they go to... They love fresh air on NPR. They do. Um, I got Allison. I so popped many, Allison. a certain demographic that is appealed to PBS, you know? Yeah. Um, and even though I love my PBS and I'm a member of my local PBS station, but... Um, there are still things that I wish they can go a little bit further. And I guess, you know, the document I'm kind of referring to other than this one was they just did one last week or so about the Black Panthers. Okay. I'm glad they put it out there and everything, but they really did a very poor job 
of really showing what the Black Panther Party was about and everything. But that's not this episode. Yeah, yeah let's, let's, we're we, we've, we've been, we've been, I think we've given the, the we've, we've stroked PBS's ego enough for the last uh, few minutes here, and I, I think it's time we get into this. Now, you have, you have Allison there with you as well. And, and here's the first thing I want to, I, I want to lead into this this way. The documentary shined a light on it. It was a very well-done piece, but I want to talk about this heroin epidemic a little bit more. Uh, from my perspective, at least, I grew up in uh, Glenview. I always like to throw that out there. You know, I grew up in the North Shore. But when I was in high school and junior high, the drug that most people used was weed, obviously. But beyond weed, it, it, it was what I would call the... the the holy trinity of suburban drug use, which is acid, mushroom, and some form of Ritalin. It was Ritalin when I was there. Now it's Adderall. Those were the drugs that people talked about when I was that age. Uh, heroin was, to people my generation, was one of those drugs that almost felt like something from a bygone era for a while. Like it had been phased out. You started hearing, uh, I would say, towards the end of high school, beginning of college, uh, people started taking uh, pain pills more, or at least mentioned it more openly than they used to. But heroin itself was something that maybe one kid in my high school uh, was caught doing, and that was it. Like, and it was like that person became, you know, as as wrong as it was. But that person was was then basically shunned by everybody else for using heroin. It was considered a gross, disgusting drug that only you know, bad people used, at least the people I grew up with. When you guys were growing up, was heroin something that was around? Um, speaking for myself growing up in this area. Um, Which area is that? Make sure that people understand. Paint a picture, well, AJ. So I live in Sterling, um, but the town very close to me is Dixon, so I kind of like call it my town because Sterling and Dixon are that, that close and everything, as well as Rock Falls. Like, oh, I'm from Glenview, but I say I'm from Chicago. It's the same yeah. thing, right? Yeah, but when I say Sterling and Dixon are make 15 fun, minutes apart. You can make fun of me now. It's right across the river in Sterling, so it's very close. Yeah. So in my area, um, marijuana was, you know, right up there in the forefront and everything. And meth was the other. And really? I personally didn't hear about heroin per se. I've heard cocaine before. Um, I've actually seen deals go down at my school, my junior high and high school and everything. Um, I know I can point to you which farmlands has the meth labs and everything. Um, but I personally have never heard about heroin. But the other th unique thing about my area is this. Dixon has a minimum security state prison and everything. So anyone in Chicago that goes to prison, they go to Dixon. How about you, Allison, when you were growing up? Was heroin something that was around? Um, it was, I would say, probably fairly accessible to me. Um, How old are you? I started you in high school, and I'm from Dixon, so it was, it was totally um, something that was around and easily accessible. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? How old am I now? Yes. 25. Okay. That's about the difference that I'm, that I'm talking about here, because in that eight-year gap, I'm 33, in the eight-year gap between us is when heroin for lack of a better term, was sort of reborn into uh, culture, into drug use culture. And I, I'm, I'm curious with you, you said you grew up in Dixon, and 
when you first started using, how easy was it for you to get stuff? Oh, it was, fair. It was fairly easy. It wasn't too much work in the beginning, um, especially because early on in addiction, you don't need a lot to fuel your addiction. Um, later on, of course, it takes more with tolerance and things like that. But in the beginning, it was fairly easy, and you knew who was doing it. And people knew in school that that's what the group of people I hung out with was doing. That's that's fascinating to me. It's just big, as I said, it was a completely it's a completely different experience. Um, I, I wonder how much of it is is due to where I was from, but. I, I honestly, cocaine wasn't even really a big issue in my high school. After high school, yes, but I, I want to get into this a little bit. Now, you guys work with an organization that, um, again, it's called uh, Safe Harbor. And I, I, getting ready for the show, I was looking into some of the numbers, especially here in the state of Illinois. And heroin use between 2007 and 2013 has doubled. Uh, spiking from 681,000 uh, to 681,000 from 314,000, uh, 8,200 lives in the year 2013, uh, which is four times what was taking place in 2002. The amount of money that's being spent on addiction treatment has been uh, cut by half by the state of Illinois as the budget crisis has gotten worse and worse. With the organization that you guys have, have you noticed... Uh, more and more young people becoming addicted to heroin, or is it, the documentary kind of paints this picture that it's not just young people, that it's uh, people who get addicted to pain pills who then find something cheaper on the street. Are you noticing uh, more people, I'd say, uh, middle-aged uh, to, let's say, 50 or 60, or is it still mainly a young person's issue? I, I think that it, it varies, and it depends on the situation. Um, and I I hate when people say um, that the older people, the only reason they get addicted are from pain pills. Um, okay. Because that's it's not always the case. People are forgetting that a lot of times behind addiction, there's things that drive it. And sometimes those aren't talked about, and that's what helps vary the age. Um, well, let's domestic talk about violence, that. abuse, those kind of things are all going to change that triggered moment. Do you find that domestic abuse and uh, or sexual abuse is a trigger for addiction in your line of work? I would say well, maybe I not a trigger, but I've worked with um, have some type of abuse in their background or have witnessed it. Um, so they witnessed their mom getting abused, or they were abused, or something along those lines. But I would say a good majority of the people. Uh, the the other question I would ask is, is you say you don't like it when it comes to the pillage. And that, that, that's, a, that's actually a very valid point because it is, it is also dismissive of what can actually be the underlying cause of an addiction. And that's a very good point to make. I, I would ask you in the work that you do, um, with people coming in to seek treatment, how many people do you say go to recovery once and that's it they 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 go to recovery one time they go through a detox program maybe a 12-step program and never use again would you say that that number is is pretty small or is or do people be a are people able to go once and, and, and cure i'm just asking i'm, I'm just trying to get an oh, idea oh neck oh neck i'm not i know that the i know i think i know what the answer is but it's got to be asked you're right and you know here's the thing i came back home recently, almost six months now, um, got to know Allison, got to know the other people of Safe Harbor. And you mean when you left me, AJ? 
Huh? You mean when you left me? Yes, when I left you. <laughs> and and I got to be honest, I mean, I thought we had an adequate recovery program in the area because there's certain outlets here in the area that offer cer certain services and everything. Um, Allison can speak more towards the um, rapid rate of people who do the one and done type of stuff and everything, but it's just really mind-boggling when you look talking to people that I have talked with and they went into recovery or got detoxed and now they're back on the street and I had a different perspective of that at one time being involved with Safe Harbor and doing various programs and activities that we do my perspective has changed dramatically to that and so to Allison I mean you've you know you've been doing this for, you know, the Safe Harbor's been around for at least almost that six-month period, if not eight-month period at this point. I mean, what is that rapid rate of people to do it one and done for recovery? Um, so I guess the only people that I've honestly seen the one and done is the people who come in and then they go back out and they overdose and die. Um, that's, that's the reality of one and done. Um, it doesn't, I've never seen it happen. Um, that's definitely not my experience and anything that I've ever seen. And I think that's the biggest stereotype is that you can go into treatment and find this cure. Um, and that's definitely not the case. And the problem is it's a continual process um, that you do every single day and you have to choose to do it every single day. And sometimes that day you don't decide to do it and you have to go back again and start over from day one. Um, but I, I don't think that I've ever seen anyone really successfully do a one and done. I've never seen it. I, I have a, I, I don't want to give names out of respect for her, but I have a very good friend of mine who I love very dearly, and she's been struggling with this for 10 years now. Uh, and when I mentioned that, you know, most people in my area didn't know it, she's the only person that I knew uh, well who ever had a problem with heroin when we were younger. It, it, it's gotten... As, as I've gotten older and, it, and it's kind of gotten, I, I don't even know how to phrase it, except to say more popular uh, in the area that I'm from, I've seen more people do it. But the one person who I know who's struggled with it for 10 years, she's had, that I know of, um, three times where she's gone back to using. And each time it's worse than the last time, which I, as I understand it is typical of most addicts. If... You, Allison, were to say, when did you first use, if you don't mind me? Do you, how much into your history do you mind that we go here? I, I, I'm just asking, because I can stop asking you directly if you'd like. No, most of my history is fairly open. Okay. When did you first start using heroin? Actually, that's. I'm sorry, let me stop that. What was the first time you used uh, anything other than tobacco? Like, when was the first time you had a drink? When was the first time you smoked weed? And then from there, what had happened? I would say, I can't remember the first time I tried drinking, but the first time that I, like, got pretty drunk, I would say, I think it was, like, in seventh grade. Okay. So, I, I would say seventh, eighth grade, and I was drinking and smoking pot then pretty regularly. Okay. From there, how old were you when you first tried heroin? Or did, were there other drugs in between weed and heroin? Um, I had tried other things in between there. Um... But heroin came pretty fast, and it became a pretty fast um, love, romantic, hate relationship. Um, 14 was the first time that I used. I, I would ask you this, because this is a question that comes up a lot, and I, and I remember 
when I was in high school and we would take health class and later on when I would take classes at college, they would talk about marijuana as the gateway drug. That was always the big thing with the dare, with, with dare and, and just say no and all of that. And with weed so labeled as a gateway drug, I've never been of the thing that if you smoke weed, you will instantly want to go out and try other stuff. But what I've always believed is that what smoking weed at a young age will do is put you in contact with other people who have access to other drugs, that it will make you part of the drug-using culture. And because people who smoke weed are so shunned by everybody else, at least in their younger age, that they're sort of more pushed to the outliers of social groups, which is where you'll find more stuff. Do you feel that you were, cha were you chasing a high or were you, when you first started trying heroin or were you chasing social acceptance or a group of people to hang out with? Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, so I think for myself, um, you know, it happened at a high school party that seemed pretty harmless, and that's what everybody else was doing. Um, no one had dirty needles, no one was homeless, um, so I think I got this perception that everything was fine. I think I can agree with the idea that maybe using um, drugs and alcohol, um, you know, like marijuana early on can put you with the outliers, you know, but I don't know if you can say that, you know, those are gateway drugs either because, I mean, we all drink milk. It doesn't mean we're all obese from eating Oreos. Um, I mean, I don't know what, what that connection is, but I do think that, you know, it can give you an easier accessibility to it for sure. So you first started using when you were 14. When did it go from being something that you did socially to an addiction? I would say by 15, it was pretty much addiction status. Were, were you, did you, I'm just asking, did you finish high school regularly or did you have to go back later and finish? So I ended up finishing high school in a drug rehab program. Um, it's not that I was not intelligent enough to finish. It's that I didn't have enough school hours in. Right. Um, so the high school wanted to get rid of me, and so their deal was if I went into inpatient treatment, and at that time it was mandated because I was underage, um, that I would receive my diploma. So. Was that mandated by the school or by the court system? By the school. Okay. Were you ever uh, arrested for possession or for using or anything like that by the state? No possession. Okay. Which is surprising. I, the other, other arrests, yes, a lot. Okay, but you were never court-mandated to go into a rehab program in your life? Oh, yeah. Oh, you were? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, what Do you mind telling me what the events were that led to that and then what happened with the court case, if that's okay? Which time? Uh, let's go with the first one, and then we'll go to the second one, and however many more there are. Okay, so I would say basically for all of them, what happened was, to because to sum it up, they're all very similar. And so what happened basically every time is I either got caught stealing, um, if it was um, an actual possession and I took it and pawned it, or if it was money, or if I broke into someone's house, and then I got arrested. And it came out very quickly when you're 80 pounds soaking wet and you look very horrible and you're throwing up in jail. It comes out very quick that you're a heroin addict. And so I was always able to have a lawyer that would opt me out of jail to go to an inpatient. 
But the problem is, the bigger problem with that is that our inpatient systems are ran with a certain protocol and procedure, which I understand you have to have, but there's a big problem in that because every bean is so different. Every addiction is so different. So what happens is you try to put this protocol on me and it's not working because I don't fit the mold. Not everyone's going to fit that kind of mold. And so you don't get the help that you need. And it's not adequate. It's underfunded. Staff is uneducated. Some of them are educated. I don't want to say that. But they don't have the high enough education level they should be have to be treating some of this. Because like I had said before, a lot of trauma and a lot of different things, a lot of shame, um, a lot of those go along with addiction. And it has to be multifaceted because I'm unhealthy physically, mentally, emotionally. I mean, Physically, I don't, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know how to live. I don't, I don't know how to eat food. I don't know how to go to the grocery store and not steal anything. And so a lot of these things are getting left out of treatment programs, and they're just trying to show you how to stop using drugs. And that's not, that's not a full compass solution to the problem. Do you find that when, when you were in treatment and the court-mandated stuff, and I do feel this is important, I, I was... And I'm not, you know, I'm ashamed of what happened, but I will never hide it. I was arrested for a DUI, and it, not nearly the same thing, but they put me into treatment facility, and, and, and not a treatment facility, but a treatment program, and the court said, you know, you have to go to this to, to basically say that you'll stop drinking and go to AA and all this stuff, and, and I went to these things. And I'm not trying to be, but I'm not, an, I'm not addicted to alcohol. I'm not an alcoholic. I haven't, I don't drink all the time, and it's not one of those things that I need. But they immediately, as a result of the conviction or the arrest, they, they send you into a, a program that may or may not apply to you. In your instance, from what I'm hearing, you were an addict, but it wasn't that, they, just like what you're saying, they, they didn't have the proper tools to help everybody and each person is different i would ask you as somebody who's now kind of working with this do you feel that there is a way to do it on a more individual basis oh i i think there is completely a better way to do it but i think it takes um, more money than our system is willing to put out i think it takes better educated staff and i think it takes better empathetic and compassionate individuals who are willing to understand specific circumstances. Nick, let me um, go off with that as well. From the things I have seen with the various programs that are out there, um, there is a school of thought when it comes to social work, when it comes to psychology, that there's a one, if not another approach that goes along, and this is how we need to treat people when it comes to addiction, um, harm reduction, so forth and so forth. And that approach is that we need to just do everything by the textbook. <clears throat> and whatever the textbook says, this person has to do it. But the things I have seen and even experiences that I have had before, um, everything is not textbook. Each person has a different personality. Everyone has had addictions uh, differently than others. Um, as you said earlier on this episode, that people in suburban Cook County and the Collard Counties is going to approach addiction differently than, dare I say, out here where Hicks and the Sticks are at. How, you would, you, how would you it, say that addiction is, around here I would argue that, not argue, I would say that around here addiction is, 
it's a pretty well-educated area, the North Shore and, mm-hmm. and Chicagoland area. And addiction is is seen, you know, there are people who would still say that it's 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 a sign of weakness around here, but most people understand that it's a, it's a problem of either either a physiological problem with the brain or a psychological problem that they're dealing with. Right. Out by you, is it still something where people who are addicted are shunned? No, no it, there's a stigma because, and you and I know the same people in the North Shore and everything else. The people who do drugs there and get arrested and everything, the court system and everyone else is going to look at that differently than someone out here who is low-income, working-class families and, dare I say, people of color. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a minute. Be be treated very differently about it, and they're going to have higher stakes in everything. Um, Even those who are gay or trans, they're going to be treated differently, not just out here, but even in Chicago as well. And that speaks more to the system as well as the services out there who fully don't understand that this problem, that be it heroin and other drugs, is an intersectional issue. And it's not just, this is Allison, and the textbook said Allison needs to go buy this, this, and that. The um, DSM-4 or 5 says this, this, and that, but Allison doesn't have this, this, or that. I don't know what the fuck to do with her, but we're going to put her in treatment anyways, because that's what the book says, and that's not the way it should be, because there needs to be a more holistic approach when it comes to a person getting on to the recovery, and as Allison and other people I've heard, you know, you, one does not, and correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, one does not fully get recovered. It's still going to be there till, unfortunately, we pass on to this life on to whatever else. And, right? I, and I would say a lot of the habits never go away. They, they, they edge with time, and they ease with time, but, but I don't know if they ever go away, some of those habits that I have. They, they just don't go away. Well, it's it, to anybody who's listening who who isn't a drug who hasn't a drug addiction, um, and maybe you smoked in your life. I, I just getting I'm just, just what you're talking about the habits of it. As someone who is a pack a day smoker, you can tell from the raspiness of my voice. The thing that I when I don't smoke that I miss more than anything else is the actual bringing the fingers to my mouth and taking a drag. I don't necessarily love the smoke like I did when I was younger. But the ritual of going outside, lighting a cigarette, and having it is, at this point, I would argue I'm more addicted to that than I am the actual chemical at this point. Is that similar to what you're saying to a... I'm not, I'm not on the same level, obviously, but like something along those lines, the ritual of it. So I would say 100%. I always give the example, when I bought my house... Um, which is a miracle in itself. But when I bought my house, I couldn't have spoons in my house. We used plastic spoons. If we had people over, like they ate with plastic spoons, I'm sorry about your luck. I could not be around them. It took me time to be able to. Um, there are certain smells that will send me off, but I have to be aware of those things and know those things. There's certain areas that I have to stay away from because I just can't go there. Um, there are a lot of things like that, like they just will trigger an instant feeling of, it, it just gives off endorphins in the brain that instantly my heart's racing and it, it becomes physical then. Do you, do you find that the mental or the physical is what you have to struggle with more uh, as time passes? 
So as time passes, I would say it's more mental. The physical state, I would say, could last a good year um, because your body, especially it depends on how much and how long you were using, but your body is beat up and um, the physical withdrawals in and of itself, um, which is something that I didn't see on the documentary. I heard them saying about how the person was getting well, and I wish they would have showed what withdrawal looks like because then maybe people could fathom it. And I have a really hard time putting that into words. If you've never experienced it, it's it's awful. The I, now now comes the part, Allison, where we AJ and I I always like to introduce it this way. There will now come the point on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, where two white boys from suburban and southern Illinois, now joined by. I would assume a very beautiful white woman will now discuss the racial issue uh, surrounding heroin use and treatment here in the state of Illinois. So keep that in mind as you listen to us talk. Despite the bass in my voice, I am very white. Uh, not very white. I'm very white. The... I thought you'd like that. Uh, but I, I want to get into this because this documentary, they, they touch on it very, very briefly. But I, do you think that, first of all, AJ... You and I would be having this conversation right now if this heroin epidemic was limited to African Americans or to Latinos or the gay and transsexual community. No. Um, yeah. That's see, what that's I kind of alluding to earlier. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. The show is that um, like other PBS documentaries, they kind of sprinkled over some of the things, but really didn't get into some of the issues and everything. And those issues is, as I also mentioned, that there's still stigmas out there, you know, um, and heroin, cocaine, um, acid, other drugs like that is not white. I mean, other uh, people, people of color and those in the LGBTQ community also does this, but, but they are treated much differently than us white folk. You know, um, if I did heroin and I went before the court, I would probably get a different treatment of it and everything, especially in this area, because I hate saying this, even, even my name, particularly my last name, has some weight to it. So I would be much treated differently <laughs> than anyone else. Well, no, um, that's, that's 100% true. If you were to take my, like, a great example is me, Nick Sarantos. If you had another dude named Nick Sarantos, and we were the exact same people had gone to the exact same schools, had done the exact same things in life, and both of us were caught uh, with heroin possession, and one was white and one was black. The white one is going to get treatment, and the black one's going to go to jail, right? Right. I, I mean, that's that to me is the other part of that story that the documentary didn't even really touch on. And, Allison, I, I kind of want to take this back to a conversation that, or something that you said earlier in the, in the interview here. You said that you d you don't like the idea that the older people are only addicted because of the pain pills. And there's a lot of truth to what you said. If you were to see, and, and not you personally, but if people were to see two people in their 60s addicted to heroin, one is white, one is black, the white one is just going to automatically be given the benefit of the doubt that it was painkillers that got them addicted and then they switched to heroin, whereas the African-American person is going to be just, well, they started doing heroin when they were 20 years old. Would you agree with that? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Does that, in, in, the, in the Safe Harbor program, do you guys have a lot of African-Americans as, as part of what you do? No, and um, and I have and if I have to advertise every Monday night, every Monday night, including holiday weeks. Um, we have 
um, what was called a community recovery group um, every Monday at seven o'clock and those with addictions and loved ones um, come to it and everything. And I would say, I don't know, the last three or four Mondays, one person, named, one person of color has been coming to group and everything. Um, and that's the only one. And it's not like he's the only one, but it's one of those things where- They're we, all in jail. Yeah, I mean, it's that. And the ones who are not, um, I don't know if they're just fearful of coming out or what, but I mean, those are the things that we're having further conversations on. But as Allison just said, um, quite bluntly, um, they're in jail at Dixon or Wasire Lee County and everything. So they don't get to have the opportunities that we're trying to provide. And if you come to our Monday night groups, um, it's mostly white people. I, AJ, you and I have talked about a lot of different political issues on this show. Oh, yes, we have. Yes, and we have a lot of fun doing it. This this show, <laughs> I'm, we're, we're trying to be as entertaining as we can while we talk about this, which basically leads to us taking digs at each other. But in the issues that we've talked about, race is always the issue that, that, that kind of comes up. When it comes to drug addiction, drug treatment, uh, court sentencing, and, and the stuff that you do, do you think that at some point we'll get to a solution um, where race won't be an issue? Or do you think that there's I, – I, the only reason I'm asking you this is is because I, I just feel like it's, it's evident watching the documentary. It's evident when you talk about it that this is the issue more than anything else that is going to affect – like race is the issue that affects almost every decision that has to do with the court system, and it's still there. Can you see through the work that you guys do that changing? Can you see a situation where if an African-American goes up in front of a judge that they'll be offered treatment as often as a white person? Do you think that will happen? Um, speaking more towards the work that Safe Harbor does, I do see that, but that's more of our area specifically. Um, and as soon as Safe Harbor grows over time, and hopefully um, in the next, dare I say, 20 years, that Safe Harbor grows in northern Illinois, um, hopefully trickling into the Colorado counties and hopefully in Cook County, um, that, yeah, that could happen. But as I've also said on previous shows, um, this issue of drugs that deals with race. It's also a class issue. It's also, and I've said before, and this is where you and I kind of see different viewpoints on it. Um, drugs is a capitalistic idea in that it's, it's, it's money. It's all about money at the end of the day. You know, we cannot talk about the immigration issue without talking about drugs and the market and everything. There's a book, everyone knows it by now, it's called Freakonomics. The very first book, there's a chapter in there about how a drug deal, dealer still lives with his mom. And that article in that book talks about how the drug market is really is. That the person at the very top makes amount, most amount of money and then the foot soldier makes the least amount of money. So even though you're drug running, you know, and people look at it like, oh, this is profitable and everything. And you look at certain quote-unquote hip-hop artists and saying, yeah, I'm doing drugs and there's money and everything. That is such a farce <laughs> that it's you don't even make that much amount of money. If 
there was heroin ink. Honestly, um, the way I see it, and Allison, correct me if I'm wrong, that if you are the lowest rung of the business, that you will make the least amount of money, whereas the person who's distributing or the person who has the connections will make the most amount of money. Well, I think that's true, but I think a part of that is missing is that a lot of those people that are running feet on the ground are addicted. Mm -hmm. A lot of those people that are running feet on the ground um, are doing so not with choice. They're doing so with coercion or threat or what, however you want to name it, um, or fear because they have to, um, and they don't have much of a choice. Um, you know, and those guys are powerful and they have a lot of money, so I think that makes it less of an option for them to even get out of the game. Just out of curiosity, Allison, out of the people that you you would buy drugs from, how many of them, out of, rough estimate, how many, like, percentage-wise, were also using heroin of the people you bought from? Um, well, when I lived in Illinois, I would say a decent, maybe, like, 50-50 was using. Um, and when I lived, because I kind of moved all over, when I lived in Texas by Mexico, um, none of those people were using, but they definitely weren't selling drugs by choice. Okay. That's interesting. I, I've never even thought, like, because I, I, everything I know about drug selling is, you know, Chicago, North Shore based, where most of the people who sell are doing so so that they can continue to get high for free. And at least that, but I've never dealt with any drug dealer above that level, I, I guess is my thing. Uh, you, you were down in Texas for this. Were, were you sort of there for the stuff that was coming fresh over the border? Is, I'm not like, not like that's why you were there, but... It's not like donuts where it's like, it just came out of the oven. No, I know that, but I'm saying like, did you witness, like you're at basically at that point, the front spot of drugs coming into the United States. Did you notice more of a cartel presence down there? Was it something that you were cognizant of or were you just in your own world at that point? So where I lived in Texas um, is right, it's a border town. Um, and so I cross the border all the time. You shouldn't do that if you're not fluent in Spanish, by the way. Um, but um, it was the most dangerous place I've ever been. Um, it was, uh, I'm not even sure how to describe it. It was very dangerous. Um, you would see dead bodies floating down the river just because um, the amount of drugs and guns and money that went through that place, um, and not always those people did it by choice, um, was it was ridiculous. It was crazy. You've, you've said that a couple times now, and, and, and I'm curious what you mean by um, they didn't do it by choice. Were they being threatened with violence, or was it just that they had no other economic uh, idea. Like, I'm just curious what you mean by they weren't doing it by choice. Were they forced into it, or was it an economic issue? So sometimes it could be something like I screwed up, and so I owe them. Um, so like I, you know, I, and I'm just using me for an example. You know, I owe them money, or I got behind on my payments, or um, I saw something that I shouldn't have, so now I have to be involved. And if they don't, if I'm not involved, they're gonna hurt my kid or my mom. Um, or, um, you know, at first I needed the money and now, you know, since they gave me A, B, and C, I have to stay. Well, we bought your car, so you have to stay. If not, we'll take this, that, and this from you. Um, so it becomes something, and violence is massive in the drug world that is left out. 
Um, and no one's going to say anything about that. It's it's huge that gets left out. I mean, pistol whipping is just a common day thing in the drug game. But I mean, basically, that the drug cartel that comes out of Mexico is essentially like the mafia. You When the mafia comes in, it's like, hey, we like it. We'll take care of this for you. I'm like, oh, remember that one thing? Right. Would you mind taking this shipment elsewhere? I'm not going to tell you what it is, but the, take the shipment elsewhere. I'm like, oh, here's a piece. You know what to do with it. I mean, is, it, would that be the equal to, like, the mafia and the drug cartels almost one the same in that kind of activity? Yeah, and occasionally, I mean, you would get paid. So, I yeah. mean, the, there's a huge benefit, and you needed the money, and there's nowhere to make money like that that was cash up front. So you did what you were told. We're, we're coming up on the end of this thing, and, and, and Allison, I want to thank you so much. This has been a, a great conversation. I, I do want to – you mentioned the mafia there, AJ. There's a part of me that wonders if, if how much of a – we always – you and I always talk about, you know, racial issues, and I've always kind of wondered – not always, but I recently have started to wonder if just the terminology that you and I and other people use when it recurs, like, why is it that a guy in a gang isn't considered part of the mob? Right, mafia implies, you know, your Italian godfather, Vito Corleone, gangster, drug cartel. You're instantly like, okay, well, that's going to be somebody who's moving heroin over the border, gangbanger. That's an inner city black kid who sells drugs on the streets. But they're all organized crime. Do you feel that by doing that, we're almost dismissing it as if you're white and from the suburbs, it's a level of crime you don't need to deal with? Yeah, I mean, crime as it's seen is also a dismissive thing because, um, I mean, marijuana is the perfect example of this. I get caught with weed, I have a drug problem. A black, young black man gets caught with weed, then they're selling. Yeah. You know, um, but we also understand that, like, even like the mafia at one point, as bad as it is, um, they didn't start do, doing the drug game until 30s, you know. And I mean, it'd be outside it was it was po- it was post World War II. Uh, uh, we, when the mafia really started doing drugs it was in post World War II, post after Prohibition. Um, that gets us to the 1930s. Then the, uh, the Depression happens, at which point they were basically running. They, they were just doing, at that point, importing, exporting without paying the taxes on stuff coming in to get goods cheaply because they were selling food on the black market. After the Depression ends, we go into World War II. The mafia actually helped the United States government. The great secret of the United States military in World War II is that the liberation of Italy, uh, the mafia played a huge part in getting American spies Right. into Italy. After World War II, the government kind of shifts its attention to shutting down the mafia, which is when the mafia starts selling drugs. And then you get that famous scene, which is based on a true life story, by the way, in The Godfather, when they have the meeting of the five families right. in that movie, and the one man stands up and says, I don't want it in their schools, and I don't want it sold to children. Is yeah. it, it, you know, it was a big thing for them up until about 1968. Uh, and then you started getting, that's when the Goodfellas thing starts to happen. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, right here, I mean, not too far for Alice and I sit, Oregon, Illinois, was in the top ten most dangerous cities in the U.S. because Alfano's Pizzeria was not selling just pizza, but cocaine. As you're going with the Jimmy John's business model out of Carbondale, sell weed with your sandwiches. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, no, I mean, to, like, to your earlier point, yes, um... And the, 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 the titles the titles that we use are are help 
foster this image of it's an inner city problem. It's a, it's a Mexican problem. Whereas it's right. all connected. It's all part of the same thing. It is. And as I also want to end this with a little bit of a PSA, and that is, you know, our last episode, we talked about the state budget and everything and how that has kind of eradicated social services, almost 60% of it in the state of Illinois. And what I also said earlier is that, you know, the, problem, the social services that we have now only views addiction in one approach. Drugs and putting someone on the road to recovery is an intersectional thing. It has to be an interdisciplinary approach to it. We cannot talk about putting someone on the road to recovery without talking about housing. And you look at Illinois, like Cook County, like 24% of Cook County has a housing problem. And by housing problem, they have there's high housing costs. Um, they have no f- facilities like a bathroom or any kind of plumbing, or there's overcrowding. So that 24% of Cook County's problems is housing, whereas we're we are sitting between 11 and 12% has a housing situation and everything. So even if you put someone in a treatment facility and they come back, say here in Dixon, where are they going to go? We have no housing here and everything. There's no f- shelters. And the shelters that we do, we do have, they have limitations. And people can't even get food, you know. They can't even, like, get a dollar from the dollar menu at McDonald's and everything. So what they have to resort to? They have to go back to the drugs because that makes money. So it's just this counterproductive cycle that if we, we can't talk about treatment without talking about better housing, having the right for food, having a better education, if that if you want to add that into the equation, everything when you're talking about recovery and you're talking about addiction and harm reduction, you have to talk about those things too. And if you don't, then I'm sorry, you're a part of the problem. It's amazing how many of the thing, issues you and I talk about on this show, AJ, just come back to the government spending the money on helping people and not businesses. It's amazing. Right. I mean, every single time. Uh, Allison, I want to thank you so very much. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Allison White from Safe Harbor, a, let's see, how did you guys put it? A caring, compassionate response to addiction? Mm-hmm. Okay. Allison, thank you so much for being on the show today. You, it, was, it was a fantastic interview, and I, I really do appreciate you being, being so open to talk about these issues. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. AJ, do what it is you do when we get ready to leave this show. Bye, people. Ladies and gentlemen, that was AJ Signeri joining me over the interwebs and Skype. I am Nick Serrano's host and Grand Poobah and other exalted titles that I can give myself at any given point of the Chicago Podcast Network. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening today. You can find us, ladies and gentlemen, on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter, uh, Chicago Podcast One. You can email us, Network at gmail.com. I want to thank Allison White for joining us. I want to thank AJ for always being there. He is my rock ladies and gentlemen he is what i lean on in a cold and stormy night and uh, now that i'm done doing that he's also kind of a bastard ladies and gentlemen this has been the chicago podcast networks out front with aj nick thank you so much for listening uh the term we're looking for right now is yes 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 oh i remember we out six miles to chicago
got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. You have been listening to the Chicago Podcast Network.